picture or a very familiar story in any case. 1 Samuel 17. We have begun to think about the kingship of David, especially in light of Jesus Christ's coming, the son of the greater son of David. We saw last week about David's anointing, the unexpectedness of that. David is not the one you'd think is the choice of king, and yet he is the choice of the Lord. The Lord who does not look on the outward, but on the heart. And now we'll see the wisdom of that choice in this very famous story. 1 Samuel 17, beginning at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man and that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to, his, to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheese, cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and he left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. 
All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much af- or were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard what he spoke when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, what if, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another, and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for them for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you were but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught, caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not yet tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give, your, or give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him and there was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, or when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shireim as far as Gath and Ekron. 
And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. That's for the reading of God's holy word. May he bless that word now to us. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ our Lord, it came to my attention recently that there is companies, there are companies uh, that you can pay, that you can hire uh, to outfit your house with Christmas decorations. In fact, I discovered there are people that do it for Halloween too. You pay them and they make you, they come and they talk to you about what you want and they turn your front yard, your house, into this glorious display of something or other. I think for most of us, hearing that, we might think, what is wrong with such people? That they have to hire somebody to come up with a scheme, some kind of plan, and put in all of these various lights and all of these various attractions so that, can't they do it themselves? Can't they just put up their own lights? What's wrong with people today? My guess is the people that hire such companies would also think, to, think of us, well, you have to put up your own lights. What's wrong with you? You can't hire somebody to do that? That's the nature of our society, isn't it? It's very competitive. It's always about seeing who's got the best and the brightest, who's got the nicest of everything. We live in a very, very competitive culture. We sense that, we experience that in so many ways as people, as members of this society as members of the church of Jesus Christ. We have this sense that we need to keep up with the Joneses, that we need to keep up with the society, that we need to demonstrate our value, that we need to prove our worth. Whether it's in the clothing we wear, the homes we enjoy, the cars we drive, the trips we go on, there are so many ways in which we need to demonstrate to the world that we too are successful, we too are worthy, we are not to be despised or dismissed. No one wants to be that. No one wants to be considered weak or frail. Even though it so often feels, doesn't it, in this day that we are just that as church, community, as congregation, as Christians in a pagan, in an increasingly anti-Christian culture where death is promoted and life is rejected, where immorality is not only defended but, but legislated, where we live in a society of such wickedness and immorality coming into our own phones, capturing and captivating our own hearts. We wonder how the church, how this small congregation of believers can possibly survive, how our federation of churches, how faithful reformed churches can possibly stand against so great a tide, so great an opposition, so great an enemy. We haven't the wealth that those in power have. We haven't the Leverage, we haven't the means by which they turn all things wicked. How can we possibly stand? We live in a very competitive culture that tells us it's all up to us. 
And we live in a society that seems to show that it's winning. It's winning, not we. We are like those who, in, like the psalmist rather in Psalm 73, who looks around and says, what's going on, God? What's going on? Why are the righteous so de- devastated? Why are the wicked so, so strong? How can we stand in the midst of this society? We worry about that as church. We think about that as congregation. How can we, how can our children, how can our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, how can those who are inundated with such perversity and immorality, you think of the pornography problem, you think about the flood of immorality that comes into our homes in that way, how can young people who get captivated and captured, addicted to such foolishness, such empty promises of the world, how are they ever going to be able to stand in the final day? How can we fight so great an enemy? We want to do it on our own. We want to come up with programs. We want to come up with policies. We are a competitive people. We can do it. We can put up our own Christmas lights. We can defend our own homes. We can, as parents, successfully put in place those programs that will guard and guide our children into life eternal. Our Christian education, it will provide this. Our homeschools, they will keep our kids safe. We can do it. We live in a competitive culture. We think we can. And we come to church and we sing these Christmas hymns. And we hear about the baby Jesus. A baby. A baby. A cute, lovely story of a couple under duress, against all odds, a child is born. It's so lovely. It warms our hearts. Gives us hope. But why? But why? Well, we have a reason why in 1 Samuel 17. A very good reason for rejoicing at the birth of the Messiah. Because we are given a prefiguring, a prototypical picture of what he does in this very famous, very familiar event, David and Goliath. We know the story. We know how it goes. We know how it ends. But sometimes we forget why it's told. So let's listen with fresh ears to this story. And let's listen to the first 16 verses in the first place of 1 Samuel 17, which tell us about Goliath. The Philistines, as you know, were the dominant force over Israel at this time. This is indeed one of the very reasons why Israel wanted a king, why they desperately wanted Saul, because they wanted somebody to defeat their enemies. They wanted somebody to deliver them from the oppression, from the boot of the Philistines who was over them. And you'll remember the Philistines were so dominant over the Israelites that there were only two swords in the entire nation. Saul had one, Jonathan had the other. Now that may have changed in the interim because there were some victories. There was a, an aborted victory. You'll remember how Saul was supposed to defeat the Philistines and he didn't because of his foolish oath. But when we meet the story of Israel and Philistia here again, we discover that in the midst of Israel, in the very heart, you might say, of the land, the Philistines set up their camp unimpeded, unprevented. They can come and march right into the living room of Israel and set up their camps and there's nothing Israel can do about it. Indeed, they can only set up their camp across the valley of Elah so that these two enemies stand opposed to each other, unmoving, un 
fighting, just rattling their sabers at each other until into the middle of this valley, into this valley of the shadow of death, stands Goliath, a champion, we're told. Well, no, that's not what we're told. In the original language, it's a man of two. That's what the word is. Translated as champion, which might be the right translation. But it may also be a reference to this very sort of practice of armies sending two men to fight. This was a practice that was done in ancient times where instead of everybody fighting, especially if they were well matched, matched the two armies, instead of everybody dying, why not just have one from each side and whoever wins then is the victor. Now the Philistines in the end don't actually abide by these rules. They rush away once Goliath is defeated, but that was at least the idea. And Goliath, he's their champion. He's their man of two. He's the guy that does this kind of thing. He fights against the champion of his opponents. Of course, it may just be that Goliath is a man of two because he was the size of two men. He is nine feet tall. This is an enormous human being. And he's well protected. We get this this description, this constant display of the armor that Goliath is wearing, making it imposing, making it difficult to see how anybody's going to be able to defeat Goliath. In fact, Goliath is so well protected, he is, in the original language, covered in scales, like a dragon, like a snake. A snake, you know, is covered in scales, has an armor on him like a lizard. That already begins to give us a sense, doesn't it, of what's going on in this story. Here comes Goliath. Here comes the representative of the seed of the serpent. We mustn't miss that in the telling of this story because this is a story that so very often gets twisted, gets turned around and gets turned into this works righteous, you can do it, competitive culture, you're the David, you can defeat your enemies, where are your five smooth stones? That's how this sermon is too often preached. And the context, the language of the text is missed. Those who preach this way aren't paying attention to what the text is saying because the text is saying, listen, you need to understand this battle in the context of the great battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent spoken of in Genesis 3.15. The Garden of Eden, which is a type of the promised land in which now Israel was dwelling, has been invaded by an enemy just as the Garden of Eden was when man stood there and the serpent came and tempted him, a serpent that captured the heart of men and women, despite the fact that man was to serve as protector, as warrior against such enemies. He was to protect and guard. He was to keep the promised land, the Garden of Eden, the place of God's dwelling. Already once in history we have seen an enemy like Goliath come into the place of God's people and God's people were to stand and defeat the enemy. Indeed, that's why God gave to his creation a king, King Adam, exercising dominion. Dominion's a king word. Adam was a king to defeat the snake. 
That's why the Lord also gave his people priests like Eli. Remember Eli and his sons who stood by the gates. Remember how often we hear that Eli sat or stood by the gates because they were to protect, they were to prevent the people of God from experiencing the tempting, the powerful overcoming of sin. They were to preserve the people and the kingdom of God free from this devastation. Indeed, that's why God, when he promised Israel would have a king, promised exactly that, that the king would serve in this respect, protecting the church, carving out this place of blessing, this garden of Eden, this promised land, this kingdom of God. Here the Lord would be served and worshipped. Here the people of God would be blessed. Here sin would be defeated. Here the enemies of God would not be able to come. And when Israel then asked for a king, and when the Lord then gave them Saul, that was the, the, the role that Saul was to play. Saul, the tallest Israelite. This nine-foot giant, to be sure, is taller than Saul, but Saul is still the tallest, the most situated, the best situated, the most equipped, the man with the armor and the sword, the hero of Israel, the choice of God's people. Let him go and defeat this man, for this day is the day that Saul was anointed as king. This is exactly why Israel wanted him. This is exactly what he was called to do. Now's the moment for Saul to be king. Here's the hour for him to be counted. And yet he's nowhere to be found. Hiding in his tent behind the lines of his soldiers who stand on the valley or stand on the hill before the valley, terrified at the rantings of the uncircumcised Philistine. And we need to remember this context of this passage. We need to remember that this is the situation in which it all occurs in terms of this battle between good and evil, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. We need to see how Saul is the chosen of Israel to defeat the, the Goliath, the enemy of God's people, so that we can learn not to dare to be a David, not to ask, where are your five smooth stones, but to appreciate how foolish we can be. And how we can choose the wrong people to be our Savior. This is what we do by nature, all of us. We shouldn't look down our nose at anyone. We should look in the mirror here. Israel is in the spot that they're in with this giant defying the armies of the living God. Because they made the wrong choice. They chose for Saul, for a strong, powerful, dynamic king who in the hour of battle has fled from the scene. And that shouldn't surprise us. It should never surprise us that if we choose for selfish reasons, if you choose someone to bless you for selfish reasons, should you be surprised when they're selfish? Why is it that our society is surprised at the way politicians inevitably turn bad. There's about a 10-year cycle for this where eventually we say enough with this guy and enough with his scandals and enough with his lining his own pockets. We hired him to line our pockets. 
That's how they get elected. Align your pockets. We say, great, let's vote for that guy. And then he lines his own pockets, and we can't figure it out. Or think about a relationship, maybe a little more close to home. Think about those that marry, who engage in a relationship, date, and seek to marry someone. They they think, this person's going to make my life better. I'm marrying this person because they exist to make me happy, because they exist to make my life easier. Only to discover in the context of marriage that that person expects you to do the same thing. And all of a sudden, there is a great deal of tension. There is a great deal of trouble. I can't believe the way that she doesn't, he doesn't do the things that I expect. We can have the same problem in business. So often, when we approach the question of our business, not only in the starting of our business and the working, our activity, our work, Not only do we think in terms of self, in terms of how will this benefit me and my family, but we get amazed when things don't go well, when we find that there isn't a happiness in it, when we find that we have to work endless hours in order to keep all of the bills paid, all of the wolves at the door. Our hope, our expectation for blessing is not produced. Instead, misery and sorrow comes because of our own choice. We sow the seeds of our own destruction when we choose to go our own way. That's how it was in the Garden of Eden. That's how it was in the Promised Land. That is how it is today. All of us need to be able to look in the mirror and say, you, you are the problem. You are the greatest threat to my well-being. Your choices are the ones that cause the greatest trouble. And then we ought to rejoice That we have so great a God as we do. Because our God knows our folly. He knows that's what we do. He knows we do it all the time. And he says, that's why I'm going to send you a Savior. Now we've already met David and his family. But this is such an important moment in redemptive history. This is such an important coming out of the king. This is such an important display and revelation of God's victorious grace that we're going to take some time. You saw how long the chapter was. And we're going to review things we already knew. We're going to hear about Jesse. We're going to hear about the eight sons. We're going to hear about the first three Even though we've already met David and his family, this is so important a moment in the history of the kingdom that he gets the royal treatment. Let me tell you who David is. David, we learn, has been traveling back and forth from home to the palace. There's fewer guys on the farm, of course, and so David has a little more responsibility at home, and it is likely that David is under the age of 20 at this time. He's repeatedly referred to as a youth. And in Numbers 1, verse 3, we learn that it is only those who are over 20 that were supposed to go to war. He can't serve in the army yet. He's not old enough. So he has to go back and forth while his older brothers do the heavy lifting. But he can help out. Oh, yes, he can help out. And indeed, his father, Jesse, says to him at one point, listen, here, take this food and go to your brothers. Now, you ought to understand that the readers of this text would have undoubtedly heard echoes of another text in the words of Jesse to David. Because Jesse says to David almost exactly what Jacob says to Joseph when he goes to his brothers. 
So if you're reading this text and you are familiar with that, if you're hearing this told to you by your dad around the fire in some night, if, if you're hearing this story recounted, you would go, wait a second, I know another son, a youngest son, that was sent to go help his brothers out and who wasn't received well, who was hated and despised, who was killed or threatened to be killed before he was sold into slavery. What's going to happen to David, Dad? That's what the child would ask. What's going to happen to David? Is he going to end up like Joseph too? And indeed, his brothers do reject him. Iliab has nothing. What are you doing? Get back. Take care of those little sheep. I know about you. They don't receive him. They don't see David as the great Messiah. They don't anticipate that he's going to stand in a moment upon that field in the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil because the Lord is with him his rod and his staff comforting him, they're not going to think any of that. They think, get out of here, little brother. You're an annoyance. You're insignificant. You're irrelevant. This is a place for men. This is not a place for boys. This is a place for those who can do something. You can't do anything. Indeed, it's not an unusual response, is it, to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. What is that? A bunch of words preached on a Sunday. Jesus Christ, that mythology. What can Jesus do? What can Jesus do in the face of illness? What can Jesus do in the face of mental health? What can Jesus do in the face of addiction? What can Jesus do in the face of the challenges and the threats that we are facing as church and as family? What can Jesus do? It's not enough. We need more. We need more. We are such a competitive people. We need more and more. We need programs. We need power. We need leverage. We need politics. We need more. We're just like Eliab. It's not enough. It's not enough. Indeed, Saul doesn't think it's enough either. David says, look, I got this covered. Don't worry about it. Dude's dead. Well, then fine. Take my armor. Except it doesn't fit. It's a, he's unequal to the task. He can't move freely in it. He can't, he can't fight with it. No, he says, give me my staff and give me five smooth stones. It is a shepherd, you understand, that steps out onto that field, not a warrior, a shepherd. A shepherd. A shepherd who sees the sheep of Israel and has compassion upon them, for they have no shepherd. Who sees the enemy and rages against this uncircumcised Philistine, just as Jesus raged at the tomb of Lazarus. David sees this as a situation he's all too familiar with. A wolf, a bear, a lion coming to snatch the sheep of God and consume them. And he stands to fight, not as a hireling, but as the good shepherd. Notice notice how David boldly walks with no fear onto that battlefield. Too often we, we do notice that and we think, what a plucky upstart. What, what a hero. Just the guy we need. But we miss, we miss for a moment, again, the context. We have to contrast for a moment David and Saul. David, who rushes to the front lines, who is willing to die, who's willing to defeat his enemies, while Saul sits back in the tent David, who is passionate about this uncircumcised Philistine, this fool who defies the armies of the living God. 
versus Saul, who is worried about his own position, who's worried about his own situation. David, who is courageous. Courageous, though no king, no king. He doesn't have the armor, he doesn't have the outlook, he doesn't appear to be a king, he appears to be a shepherd. Versus Saul, who sits in his palace, you might say, who sits in his grandeur, who promises wealth to anybody who will defeat this Goliath. David, who hears the blasphemy of Goliath, and who remembers that those who blaspheme, who remembers Leviticus 24, verse 16, you blaspheme the Lord your God, you must be stoned. That's the punishment for blasphemy, stoning. David says, right, we're going to stone this guy. What's the difference between David and Saul? Is it that David is just a better man? Is it that David is just a more bold person? Is David inspiring to us, causing us to be just as bold? Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't forget the verses 13 and 14 of the chapter before. When Samuel comes to David and anoints him, he takes his horn of oil and anoints him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And the very next verse, 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. What's the difference? The difference is this one's anointed by the Spirit of God, anointed for the purpose of delivering his people by the power of God. Here is the protector of the promised land. Here is the zealous servant of the living God, the second Adam, who would not falter in the face of the serpent's foul words. Here is the champion, the Messiah. That's what anointed means, the Messiah. Here is the Messiah. A Messiah who looks nothing like what we need. Offensive to his family. He has no political savvy. He is passionate about matters religious and spiritual. He's embarrassing to his family and he is thought by his, by his supporters as a fool. Yeah, how are you going to possibly defeat Goliath? But he stands in the power of the living God for he is anointed of the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ which also means anointed. And that is what we need to see. That is what our hearts need to be thrilled at. That is what we need to be amazed at as we face also our challenges in this life. We may not face Goliath's nine-foot giants, to be sure, but in our spiritual battles, we do find ourselves against opponents too great for us to defeat. In our spiritual battle, we find ourselves not unlike those who thought David was hardly the man of the hour, that the enemy was simply too great. And that's because the prevailing wisdom of our culture and of our world and even of our own churches is simply do better, be better, be more committed, try harder. Come on, Christian, you can do it. Success is your choice. Victory is in your hands. You can do it. And of course, there isn't always, with the lies of the devil, an element of truth. Foolish choices do lead to ruin. Wise choices lead to blessing. The Israelites chose Saul and ended up in this mess. God chose David. Indeed, the very fabric of our world testifies that those who walk in wisdom's ways, who fear the Lord, are blessed. But we miss the truth of what we're called to face 
For our enemies are not nine-foot giants. In the words of Paul, they are these. We do not wrestle, he says in Ephesians, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And now ask yourself, are you able in your own life to overcome such enemies? Can you defeat the enemy of sin in your own heart? Can you defeat your lusts, your greed, your pride, your anger, your selfishness? Selfishness. Can you do things that ensure the blessedness of your life or are the things that bring ruin into your life the choices that you make? By nature, we make poor choices. In fact, our enemies are too often viewed as our allies. We think they're going to bless us, that alcohol is going to make us happy, that marijuana is going to make us happy, that pornography is going to make us happy, that these things will bless us. We don't even want to fight against Goliath because we don't always think he's our enemy. So that the truth of this passage and the truth of our existence is we don't need to be like David. We don't need to be like David. What we need is David. We need a Savior who will step onto the battlefield for us and who will expose the truth for us and who will defeat the enemies for us because we are too weak. The purpose of this story is not to stir up our courage so that we can fight our enemy. Oh, we must stir up our courage without question. We need to fight the good fight of the faith. We need to beat our bodies to bring them into submission. There's lots of scripture that challenges us and encourages us to wear the full armor of God. But none of those passages makes any sense if the battle is ours to win. If we think we're the champion in our story. If we think that we can stand against the ogre of addiction or of hate or of accusations, then we fail to understand just how flawed, broken, and weak we are. There is a battle before us, and if we go on our own, we will inevitably lose. But that is, praise the Lord, not our story. This story is the story of God and of his anointed, endowed with his spirit, doing battle for us doing battle for us so that we might be more than conquerors through him who loved us. David steps onto the battlefield, a shepherd armed only with a staff and sling. Before him stands a battle-hardened man. The stone flies, the enemy falls, and the victory is of the Lord. Central to this scene is not the five smooth stones or even the accuracy or effectiveness of a sling. Central to this story is the words of David to Goliath. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, that all the earth may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give me, or he will give you into our hand. You have to hear the echoes here of Hannah's words. You remember Hannah's song in chapter 2? Remember why she wanted a son? It wasn't so she could be happy. It wasn't so that she could say to her sister wife, Haha, I am actually a decent woman. Oh no, do you remember why? He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, he said. 
But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give, his, give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. Those are words that are familiar to us, not only from chapter 2, but from Mary's Magnificat. They are taken up by David now in this moment. This is what's happening here. God is defeating the enemies of the church because he is faithful, because he is able, and because he is good. David says, you don't understand, O world. You don't understand, O Philistia. You don't understand, O Goliath, against whom you stand. For you may see us as weak. You may see me as a dog. You may think I've brought you sticks or a stone, but I have brought you the name of the living God. For he is the Lord of hosts. He is the faithful one. And he defeats all the enemies of his church. Oh, in the darkest moments, the gospel is the brightest. To be sure, the Lord has allowed his people into this valley of the shadow of death. He's brought them into this dark moment so that the brilliance of this diamond of his grace shines the most brightly. Indeed, it confuses Saul. Saul says, whose son is this youth? David, who's been serving in Saul's tent, who's been playing the lyre and the harp in order to calm the the wicked heart of of Saul. Saul says, wait a minute, who is this guy? Saul knew, of course, technically who David was. But now Saul's asking, wait a second, is this this kid from a a family of heroes? Is this guy guy the greatest character in the pages of Scripture? Who is this guy? Saul's not asking about lineage. He's asking, how is it possible that this boy could achieve so great a victory? Saul's confused, understandably, because he's misunderstood the gospel. He's misunderstood the way of faith and salvation. He's misunderstood the church. That's what the world thinks too. The world mocks and laughs at us. As we diligently seek to raise our children in the fear of the Lord, as we diligently worship the Lord each Lord's Day, as we seek to maintain the respectability of worship, as we seek to maintain the dignity of serving the Lord, our world thinks, there's no way. Don't worry. The, church is, the age of the church is done. Don't worry. Don't worry. It'll be over. And as the enemy continues to win victory upon victory, as it begins to seem as though we're never going to be able to stand against the troubles of this world, we have to take to heart the words of David. Whatever else we might think about this victory of David's over Goliath, often focusing on the mechanics of the victory, the speed of a stone being slung by a skilled shepherd or the metallurgists who made the helmet of Goliath and maybe made it flawed or on and on it goes. The explanation given by David has nothing to do with him or his skill in war. It has only to do with the God who is just, the God who defeats his enemies, the God who stones those who blaspheme his name, the God who delivers his people from their enemies. This is not a battle between David and Goliath, not entirely. This is not even a battle between Israel and Philistia, at least not entirely. It is first and foremost a battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light against God and his enemies. A battle between the covenant Lord who keeps his promises, who protects and preserves his people, who sends them a savior to stand at the gates and to defeat the snake that comes against them, who delivers them from the hand of their great enemies. 
This is an evangelistic message. This is a gospel message. This is a message to all the world. Let the world know there is a God in Israel. Let Israel know that the Lord saves not by swords, not by might, but by his great name. That's the the message we all need to embrace again today. Individually, we need to embrace it. As you're battling in your life the challenges, the struggles, the sorrows, the pains, the sins of this life, as you come into this place burdened by enemies greater than Goliath, rejoice to know that you've been given a greater Savior than David. You've been given the baby born on Christmas morning, Jesus Christ. Embrace him, lay hold of him, walk with him, trust him. He will give you victory over your enemies, be sure of that. As families, as those who are called to raise others in the fear of the name of the Lord, know that the way forward is not programmatic, it's not systematic, it is not the school, it is not the, 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 the material that you use to teach, it is the Messiah that you proclaim. That's why you choose the material. That's why you send them to the Christian school because it is the Messiah they need to see. It is the King of Kings they need to follow. Hold before them, dad and mom, every day Jesus Christ and his victory that they may know that the enemy who stalks them each day is not equal to the Messiah who has redeemed them by his love. As a church, as a church, this is our calling to go out into the world and hold forth this truth in many and varied ways. Jesus Christ is the king. Jesus Christ rules over politics, over business, over life. We display that in the way that we carry ourselves, in the way that we act and work in this world, in the way that we interact with those around us. Sometimes we interact with those around us and we think there's no way they're ever going to be saved. There's no way they can ever be brought to faith. But the power of this shepherd king is so great that he sets a table before the enemy. So great is this king that he can save even the hardest hearts. He can even save mine. And if mine, then everyone's. The goal of the church is to glorify the name of God in Jesus Christ. Even as we face the reality of sin and death. Even as we face the burden of this fallen world and the enemy that comes against us, the growing tide, the tsunami of immorality. It may seem to us that there is no hope, that there is no way we can resist, there is no way we can win. And we are called to fight, no doubt. The Israelites were too. After Goliath fell, they had to run in application of that victory and in defeat of their enemies. And so the church must do today. We must fight. But praise be to God, we don't fight to gain the victory. We fight to enjoy the victory. We fight as those who are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When facing our demons, our addictions and our struggles, those sinful realities that say to us, you can't beat me. They're right. We can't. But Christ can and has. And in that confidence and in that conviction that Christ has defeated sin and death, defeated the power of sin, defeated all of our enemies, In that strength, we can fight. We can say to the world, thus far and no further. For in the name of the Lord I come, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thanks be to God.
Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a great gift is Jesus, the greater David. The victory, Lord, is won through his arm, not through our ability, but through his work. His work on the cross, his battling a greater enemy than even Goliath ever was, death itself. And he has won the victory for us. May that fill our hearts with such joy, such comfort in the midst of a fallen and depraved generation, such hope in the midst of challenging times where it seems as though the church is diminishing daily. May we know that in Jesus Christ we are more than conquerors. And so may we fight. May we fight. Confident in the King, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing in response from numbers or from Psalm rather 89.